Hello and welcome to Be The Wolf. I am your host, Jenea Barnes. Many people struggle to be the fullest, biggest, truest versions of themselves. They bend to fit into other people's ideals of who and what they should be. They tame their brilliance to avoid judgment and gain approval. A long time ago, people attempted to tame the wilderness of Yellowstone National Park by eradicating predators. Taming the wilderness collapsed the ecosystem. But there's hope. In the mid-90s, 41 wolves were introduced into the park and with this, the ecosystem replenished itself and flourished. The wolves did nothing but be exactly who they are meant to be and do what they were born to do. So I say to you, be the wolf. Hello, hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Be the Wolf. Today we are going to talk about the masks that we wear. I'm here with organizational psychologist Kim Perkins. I was super looking forward to this one. So often I'm I'm talking much more in the micro and we're going to get a little more macro today. Now Organizational psychologist, can you tell us, Kim, what it is that you actually do? <laughs> it's a great question because I do a lot of things. So an organizational psychologist is not a therapist, but it's somebody who thinks about how people come together to create things, to do projects, to do volunteer work, and of course, to do corporate work or, or uh, for-profit work as well. So i that means that I spend a lot of time thinking about leadership and motivation. Those are kind of my areas of specialty and also incentives and what gets and purpose and meaning. And so what that looks like on a daily basis is um, working with teams to help them function better, doing some executive coaching. And lately I've been doing a lot of equity work in terms of diversity, equity and inclusion, which I think in, at this point is more just about making work more human. I love that, making work more human. One of the things that I love about the work that I do is it builds leaders. It builds leaders who get to show up in a way where we make environments that are good and healthy for people. And I think that's a big piece of what you do. It's the, I think it's what we're striving for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the... Uh, I, I think so many people have been taught to believe that you are supposed to just do the grind, grind yourself to the bone and keep going and keep going and what it doesn't, your needs don't matter, all of those things. And I think especially the last couple of years, it's becoming very evident that we sacrificing now for retirement later is not working for us as a species. That is so true. That is so true. Uh, that hustle culture, I think that that, that has been, there's been always a permutation of that, especially in American culture, you know, because we, we've really built a lot of um, our culture around unfettered capitalism, be able to, like, any person can go as far as they want to, you know, these, these are part of our basic myths, and I call them myths, in America. Um, 
but they're very important to us. It's very important for people to feel feel that way. And I think in the last couple of years, as you've mentioned, people have been starting to see the places where that's not exactly true and where there's um, a lot more to life than just hustling and trying to get as much resources as you can so that for some later time and people are looking for more or different from their lives. Yeah, I think a lot of that really comes from generations before us. It's like the Great Depression and everybody was so poor and resources were so scarce that people would just hang on to them, hang on to them, like hoard, hoard, let me hold on to them. I don't, it's like, it's basic survival mode. And I think overall, we more and more people are leaning towards living moving into living mode rather than survival, survival, survival. Yeah. You know, we, we have created these systems that are really good for generating resources, but I think we're at a point now where it's less about generating resources and more about distributing them. And that's really where the issue, where the issue comes in. And so what our parents or grandparents might've experienced in terms of scarcity, we, uh, you know, just in my little she shed here, I have more individual objects than were like in entire towns in like the 17th century. <laughs> it's not about having more stuff, but it's about having the right stuff and about being able to have what uh, you need to support the life that you want to have rather than some kind of outward scale of display. That's And that that's where I think people are floundering a little bit sometimes because there's not really a great model for this. Our culture encourages constant consumption and ever more looking to, uh, you know, the next person to see if we can do better than that. And, and, and I don't think that's really serving us at this point in time. I agree with you. And what I've seen time and time again, as I do the healing work that I do, is that you start to need less and you want less because so many people are using all of those things to fill up their self-esteem, their value, all of those things and to, you know, become successful. So people will give them um, accolades or think a certain thing of them. And the reality is, is that, you know, the people keep collecting and getting more and more and more, and they're still not truly happy and truly fulfilled. And we've gone into these ideas and these masks and all these things about what success looks like. And, you know, I think a lot of us who are living a more powerful life now have gone down those roads and realized it did not work. And we had to go back, restructure, pivot, and exactly what you said, there's not a lot of models for it. There's not a lot of like, how do we do this? I remember my dad said to me, um, we were having a conversation about when I was born and he was like, I, I don't know how to live my hippie ideals and raise a child. So he went and got a regular job, which sacrificed everything he believed in because that was, he didn't know what 
else to do because there was no model for it. And so I think one of the things that's so important about what you're doing and so many people that are stepping forward in this kind of work are doing is we're giving people models to a better system that will create more health in us as a species, as people. I really identify with a lot of what you said there. I think my, my parents were very um, art-minded, kind of bohemian, and they too didn't really know how to figure this out once they were having kids. So my they did what, you know, being artists and writers, they did what a lot of people do is like, well, let's just do advertising. And they found, they found that very unfulfilling, but they didn't really have a, couldn't think of a way to really supply for the children the life that they wanted to and the models in, in any other way. And, and I think we were actually, as I think back, it would have been great for them to have more self-actualization would probably have been a better way for them to support us rather than trying to make sure that we had all the things. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. A friend of mine was working his butt off and he's just like, I wanna make sure my kids don't want for anything. I'm like they need your love, they need your presence, they need all of that way more than they need a million things. They need you to not be uh, up, um, annoyed and upset and cynical all the time is what they need. 100%, 100%. So your journey, you were not always in this space of really looking to create this um, better model for the world. You leaned into some of the old models. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your story, where you began, some of the pivots. We, we'll, we'll go there. It's been a long <laughs> road, really. It's been a weird and wild road. So to the, the short version, if there is such a thing, is that um, I started off uh, as a journalist and a writer. So as a teenager, I wrote for magazines and, and newspapers. I did, I would, teenage rock critic stuff. It was really fun. Um, and then when, uh, and I thought I was going to kind of do journalism and then I kind of got hijacked into thinking about film and publishing for a while. And so I went to New York after college and uh, worked in publishing, worked in film. That wasn't really going anywhere. I ended up going to Miami and starting a magazine with a friend. It was the nineties. We were doing magazines. And uh, then I discovered that I had a hidden talent for um, inline speed skating, which is basically racing on rollerblades. And at this point in time, I had become um, a magazine editor. I was the editor-in-chief of a publication and 250 pages a month. It was fairly large and specialized. And I was doing what I thought I had kind of come to do. But at that point in time, I was also... Um, uh, diagnosed with a terminal illness, basically. I had a, um, I was in my early 30s, and my mother had a polycystic kidney disorder, which is something that it turned out I had too. You can't really diagnose it until your 30s. And so even though this had caused me really no problems, I was aware that it was going to put a real limit on my life, because I might only make it up into my early middle 50s, as people in my family were doing. And so I kind of thought, wow, is this really how I want to spend my life in an office editing 
this stuff that I'm not really that interested in and this otherwise very good job. And that's when I did my first like really big pivot. And I said, no, really, I don't. And so the, the, the um, doctors I was working with said there wasn't really much I could do to stay healthy other than maybe get my cardiovascular system in really good shape. And so I was like, okay, cool. I've been a nerd most of my life. I think I'll just really work on working out and things like that and doing some, some um, physical exercise. And I tried running and running is terrible. And, <laughs> but I had gotten in a couple of 5k races uh, in running and I thought, wow, racing is really interesting. Everybody comes together and they uh, support each other. It's not like gym class, you know, and you're in a beautiful place and it's kind of like this fantastic ritual. I wonder if they do this on skates. And it turned out that they did. And it turned out that I was had uh, some talent at this. And then, so in my mid thirties, I basically kind of dropped everything and became like a, um, a skate bum in the way that one could become a ski bum and just uh, raced and taught lessons and had a great time and traveled all over the world and won a bunch of things and had a really fun time. And then of course it, I got to be my late thirties and at some point you have to stop doing sports. <laughs> yeah. Before we, before we go there, what yes. was it, you know, you said you had a good time. You yeah. And when you're looking at that idea of like, well, do I want to be editing for the rest of my life? In theory, if the body is not a factor in getting older, would you have continued with the skate bum lifestyle? If it hadn't been a factor, I mean, but at a certain point, I mean, that's a great question because the time I quit, I there's the longest race in the world is 87 miles. Um, I won it three times and then I quit. And then I said that was enough. And I, I wanted to kind of go out on top or at least, you know, on top in for what I wanted to accomplish. There were plenty right. of things that would be more on top that you could make an argument, but this is really what I wanted to do. Um, right. And and part of that was I was ready for to do something else. I've been you know spending twenty hours a week skating around, and I felt like I had I, I like the teaching and coaching I was doing was starting to be more meaningful than winning stuff myself. Okay, that's I mean that's huge, and I think that a lot of people go through that transition where it's it's about at first it's about what do I want to do that's going to make me happy. And then at some point, the needs start to get filled. And then it's like, oh, well, let's do something that's even more meaningful. Now that my needs are filled, um, I can move forward. And a lot of people have that drive, that desire. A lot of my clients become entrepreneurs later so that they can figure out how to give back. But at first they're starting and looking into, let me have a job and a position with a company that gets my needs met. So I love that as the coaching and the teaching started to become more meaningful and you sounds like you wanted to lean more into that. So tell us more about that. <laughs> well, there, you know, a lot of times people go into personal training or something very physical after an athletic career. And I tried that um, a little bit and realized it was absolutely not for me because I like to work with people who, uh, the people who wanted personal trainers just wanted people to sort of stand over them and tell them to do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, I could wear a corset and make a lot more money, you know. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so I thought that's not really for me. So um, I was interested in the psychological aspect of it, really. And so that that led me toward thinking about psychology. I was thinking about the organizations I'd worked in when I was in my 20s and how you had your own skills and then you had your skills of getting along and working with the team and then the whole what the team is responding to in general. And it was a lot like what you had to do in skating because skating is not an individual sport. It's not really a team sport either. You're kind of both neither. And I feel like that's like a lot of organizational work where you're sort of on your own, but you also have allies, but they're not necessarily the people you think they're going to be. And so I thought, wow, this looks a lot like organizations. And so at that point in time, I went to, um, I went to, I was living in the Bay Area. I went to San Francisco State, took a couple of psychology classes, did everything just to see kind of where I fit in psychology. Um, didn't really get any rule outs. That was a problem because I, you know, I'm a very curious person. I'm interested in everything. <laughs> Uh -huh. I worked on the San Francisco suicide hotline for a number of years. That was very, um, that was very rewarding work, but I didn't feel like I could do it, be a clinical psychologist and talk to depressed people all the time without it affecting my own mental balance. Right. So, so I investigated that, but I ultimately decided to work with organizations. And then I went, so I went to graduate school in Claremont to be in their positive psychology program and study with Mike Csikszentmihalyi, who is the father of flow, the idea of um, peak experiences where, and I'm gonna reference what you said a minute ago, where you're constant, as your skills grow, you're also uh, upping the challenge and in that way, keeping yourself in the zone, keeping yourself motivated and having a really right. good time. So that if your skill, if the, the situation, requires more skill than you have, then that causes anxiety. But if it's flipped and it's you have a lot more skill than the situation calls for, then it's boredom. So you need to keep right. growing as your um, as your skills grow. And I think that's that's pretty relevant for it's been relevant for my career and it's and relevant for um, a lot of how people manage their own. I, I think you're right. And I want to touch on this because I think there's a lot of people who are younger and they're just like, I see these people that have these amazing careers and they're happy. And I'm just like, everything is the worst right now. And I don't know how I'm ever going to get there. And the thing is, is every, almost every single one of my guests, it was not just one career shift or one pivot. It was I did this and I gained these resources and then I did this and I gained these resources. And as they get older, it begins to blossom more into that thing where, oh, now I'm doing the bigger thing that's giving back to the world in a more powerful way. And a lot of that comes from, you know, just taking little steps and not trying to jump to the end so quickly. What a great point that I need to keep in mind myself too at this point. <laughs> I think we I all do. <laughs> I, I tend to be very ambitious and and think about that what that endpoint looks like, and then frustrated when I can't go immediately there. You know, right? Yeah. So at that point, I I was in school. I was learning about all this stuff. I was trying to get together. Um, I had done a master's thesis about competition and flow. And where I had um, demonstrated that, you know, the, the 
the usual line was that, you know, experiencing less flow and competition because you're worried about winning. And I was like, oh, that wasn't really my experience was that part of the challenge was trying to do it in this very specific high pressure situation. And that was actually part of flow. And so I kind of demonstrated that with my master's thesis. And then for my dissertation, I wanted to take that into an organizational setting. And that's where I experienced a huge roadblock. Mm. And that was because I couldn't get any results demonstrating that anybody was enjoying competition at work. Wow. <laughs> I tried six ways from Sunday. My, my, first of all, there, there was not like a great pattern for that in the literature that I could draw on, but I had this idea that, I mean, we talk about competing at work all the time. We talk about like somehow this is a juicy thing. So surely there must be somebody enjoying this in a way that we can link in positive psychology to positive outcomes for people. And after just, I, I spent a couple, I spent a really long time trying to find this link and trying to convince my advisors of this link and nothing. And eventually I had to abandon that as a possibility because I could not find any reason to believe that comp competition was positive for people. And this was a real problem for me. <laughs> because well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a huge thing because I know for me in my younger year, well, my super young years, I was very competitive when I was a kid. And then as I got older and in my 20s and even in my 30s, I wasn't competitive at all. I just was. And the reality was deep down inside, I felt like such a piece of shit of that I just gave up. I didn't even try. I didn't push forward. I mean, I overworked myself and all of that, but all of that was, you know, for um, somehow being validated that I had some worthiness and uh, all of that. But the co the competitiveness in me was all but gone. And as I healed, I'm super competitive now, but I'm competitive with myself. I'm competitive with like doing better every time. And yes, it's great to have somebody that's like right there competing with me, but it's about that supportive competitiveness. That's like, hey, we're all a part of whatever it is, humanity, a similar um, industry, whatever it might be, is we lift each other up and we compete in that way, that's where the magic and the flow happens, in my opinion, anyway. It turned out, yes, I would have to agree. I mean, it turned out, you know, my, my chick said me how I used to say, every time we would talk about this, he would say, well, you know, the original, the, the intellectual history of the term competitiveness means striving together, meaning striving together mm -hmm. for excellence. And I'll be like, yeah, and but the problem is that really the way it is it comes down at work is it's more of a war metaphor than yeah. a play metaphor and so for you doing what you're talking about is kind of playful and supporting each other and not serious but when it's at work and when there's resources on the line it's really more war and it really is right. very serious and very cutthroat and that's not positive survival instinct again survival mode it's survival and that's why I couldn't get any traction on positive competition at work, which was what I was trying to study. And yeah. this really, uh, I 
this really messed with me because I had been used to gathering my own fire from this competitive place. And, um, and I couldn't make it work. And so anyway, I, I ended up doing my dissertation on a different topic. I went to work for a, co a consulting company. I was working with a lot of big name tech companies and big name entertainment companies. And I could name drop here, but let's just say their names, you know. And um, I found myself utterly, utterly unfulfilled. <laughs> mm. Not just unfulfilled, but actively getting worse as a person. <laughs> wow. Um, I found myself, I was making a lot of money, which I really enjoyed, but I found I was spending it all immediately because it felt like compensation, you know, we right. talked about compensation, like you do this for me and I'll do this for you. But it felt like I was making up for something that I was also experiencing. It was kind of terrible. And, um, I found my creativity just dried up and mm. I was, I was in, um, I was at a big name company in San Francisco and I was just there kind of on a ride along, you know, being the doctor person to say, yes, this is all fine. Dominic, Dominic, right. And there's a cat really trying hard to get into my, she shed here. So you're going <laughs> <laughs> to hear that. She's going to come on. Oh, I love that. And so there, and at that point, you know, I remember being up, up there in San Francisco and, um, yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, sitting, writing along for the meetings at this, the company was so incredibly wealthy that there were banks of, um, every kind, you know, it was, it was what I, the, what the environment I used to call heaven slave labor camp. There was every kind of soda. There was kombucha taps every three feet. There was, if you want a new keyboard, just go grab one. You know, there's everything you could possibly want. Put your dry cleaning over here. We've got your whole life covered so you can just stay here and do what we work, need you work, to do. Work, 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 And, and I, you know, we went to lunch and there was, you know, everybody's got these, you know, $50 plates of cafeteria food that looks beautiful and that they're not paying for. And I just was like, you know, my brother, my brother-in-law, they're getting nickel and dime. They have to pay for uniforms to go work in. I mean, what is this? This is, this is not good. This is not sustainable. And right. maybe it's a little survivor guild for me because, you know, when you do a PhD, you do a lot, a lot of work for free. <laughs> right. And then suddenly you all these resources at you. <laughs> But I just was like, I can't feed this machine. I feel like what I am doing, like literally what my skills are, are to take the literature and psychology and teach people how to keep the mask up just a little longer or keep it on their face a little bit better so that they can get the resources. And I'm like, that is not what I came here to do. So interesting. When we talked before, you, you had this moment where you realized that you were actually teaching people to wear the mask that yes. deep what was really going on within you is you really wanted to help people become more empowered and something different but the reality is is that to do your consulting work you were teaching people to put the mask on is that correct that is absolutely true. I was teaching people how to say things in a corporate manner, how to keep their emotions out of things, how to depart from their humanity 
rather than lean into their humanity, which I believe is the only thing we can do that's going to get us out of some of the jams that we're in right now as a species. Yeah, this was about as far from my original mission as I could have gotten. <laughs> the, such the opposite of the be the wolf quality. And I think more and more, it's more and more people are beginning to realize that I have to take care of myself in a real and true authentic way in order for me to be able to show up and actually live a fulfilling life. And when you're putting that mask on, when you're showing up inauthentically, over and over and over again, what people don't realize is that every single action and behavior you do either increases your self-esteem or diminishes it. Your self-esteem is your opinion of yourself. So when you stuff down your truth and your feelings to make somebody else happy, you are diminishing your self-esteem. And the more you do these things, when you sacrifice your well-being for money or trying to you know, play a certain role, when you do those things, you are diminishing your self-esteem. And for many people, there becomes a point of no return where their self-worth is so low that they can't step into any other role because they've unconsciously made choice after choice after choice. And many of those choices are for survival to damage their self-esteem and their self-worth. Yeah, I think I, I think that's spot on. And I had not realized what a slippery slope that was. It was really difficult for me. I'm an ADD person and I'm kind of the ADHD variety. You see me doing a lot of this, right? I'm just a, I'm a running around kind of person, you know? And just even being in grad school with the three hour seminars where I have to sit there and nod prudently was really, really difficult for me. Um, and I'd been on this path of pushing down so many parts of myself that by the time it got to the payoff, which was, you know, this job that was where people were saying, wow, Kim, you did exactly what you said you were going to do. This is so wonderful. And I'd be like, I hate my life. Everything is terrible. You know, right. it was, it was really hard to come out of. And, and it was, I, I got laid off in the pandemic and that was the best possible thing that could have happened to me. Because I was too, at that point, I was too chicken to leave because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And right. when I applied for other jobs, they took a look at my resume and said, oh, you'll be great as pretty much exactly what you've been doing. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I, don't, I just want to try something else, you know. And, and so I, it took that boot to actually get me on a path that was more aligned. And I think a lot of people have experienced this. It's the, you know, the great resignation, all of these things where people realize like, oh, I can't do this anymore. They've slowed down enough that they could actually listen to themselves. And so you yeah. had other jobs saying, hey, you know, you can continue doing this. Um, we did, I'm guessing they wanted you. Um, what? Had you say no? I mean, I, I I hear that you knew that you couldn't continue forward, but what did you have to step through personally within yourself to make that decision of something that was true and right for you? 
Mm, it was hard, honestly, because there was a lot of, I did a lot of, tr of trauma work, honestly. I did a lot of work on my own trauma from because I, I was always the designated hitter for my family. Oh, you're the smart one. You're going to go. I mean, not the only smart one, but you're, you're the one who we're going to bet is going to make the family proud, um, you know, accomplish all the things that the parents didn't get to do, that kind of thing. Right. And so it, the idea of me needing to have achievement in the world in order to be an okay person was just so baked into my personality. Um, I didn't really know what, it, what life without that was going to be like, you know. And you're not alone. You're not alone at all. Yeah. Having those preconceived notions of what you're supposed to do and supposed to be is one of the most debilitating things for people. And it's really, I think, important to acknowledge the aspect that so many parents want their kids to accomplish what they could not. And yes. as, as a child, that burden becomes huge. And it happens if you're if your parents have that, and most of the time it's unconscious, they don't, they're not like, oh, you have to do everything that I met, wanted to do, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's, it's what you pick up in what people say or the actions that they do. And as a child, if you discover that that's sort of your plot in life, Oftentimes that happens so young that there's no memory of what life was like before where you got to have something that might be your own joy. That is exactly right. I had no memory of a self before this because I, all I remember was as a kid, you know, anytime I did anything that impressed them, they would say, oh, wow. Oh, this is a nice drawing. You're four. Maybe you're going to grow up to be a famous artist. Oh, this is a nice, uh, you sang nicely. Maybe you'll be a famous singer. And that was, you know, there was no not betting on my future somehow. Right. And, yeah. And, and also, know. you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mixed race kid. My dad was black and my mom's white. And that, that played into it a lot because my father had a lot of, of, um, aspirations that could not be realized with his skin color and position. Right. And so he put a lot of that into me and I couldn't really tell what was mine and what was his at a certain point, you know? Yeah. I think that's a really important point. And, you know, we've got, when our parents have these limitations that have been put on them through society and beliefs and all of these things, it's really hard to develop the self-worth to know that you can do it. And when you don't have the belief, when you believe that you are less than because you're a woman or the color of your skin or any of those things, it doesn't matter what the opportunity is in front of you. You're going to show up less than if that's what you believe inside. And it's one of the cornerstones of the work that I do is creating that self-worth, that self-value, that belief that you are enough just as you are. And sure, of course, there's going to be people that are discriminated against you and all of that. But when you show up the same, 
in all the circumstances, that is when you get to take control in your life. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I'm thinking about some recent research I've seen that's talking about how parents often think that telling kids it's a hard world and you're gonna have to work hard and preparing you for the worst is helpful and um, but actually it tends to not be associated with as good outcomes as telling kids that as, have, as, as kids have developing the belief that um, the world is a place where you can do some interesting things and you can be yourself and um, it, more of a benign universe just works better even though it sounds even though many parents don't believe that that's the way they should raise their kids. Right. Well, I mean, it's 100% true. You know, the story of the four minute mile, you're a racer. You probably know, you might know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Belief is really huge and expectations are huge. And that's something, you know, a cornerstone right. of organizational psychology is that if you have low expectations of your staff, they will, they will meet them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And for those of you that don't know the story of the four minute mile, the four minute mile, it was thought to be impossible to run it. That was like, and they even decided like, if it was possible, it would be these track conditions, this kind of weather, this kind of runner, all of these things. And then I think his name is Roger Bannister. I can't, I'm not positive on that, but he ran a, he ran a four minute mile. And then all of a sudden, people started running four-minute miles all the time because it was thought to be possible. So the belief, if you believe the world is hard and you have to work yourself to a bone to have any kind of success, unconsciously you create that. And it is, it is the mind is our biggest weakness and our biggest asset and one of the cornerstones is what we create. So I love that, you know, you're leaning into creating a more equitable world and creating organizations and working with corporations and whatnot to create the kind of environments that will actually allow us to thrive and build and create that joy that every single one of us deserves. Yeah, you know, thank you. And that's 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 really where my work has been going now. What I my work in equity has led me to believe that the only way out of this is to think about not what specific groups need and try to balance scales as much as to think about what all humans need in terms of dignity, communication, autonomy, the ability to make choices for themselves, the ability to have community and to feel supported and to be do things together. Um, and this is very much contrary to a lot of the kind of inherited ideas we have about how organizations should run or how economies should run. Um, what we have now is a situation where we are supporting systems that don't work for humans. We, this is just, our economic systems, our distribution systems are all about keeping the systems running, but that ends up creating a lot for a few, which doesn't make them that happy, by the way. And, um, and creating a, a great deal of scarcity and inequality for other people. And, and the thing about inequality is that humans don't like it. In fact, animals don't like it. We know from like all animal studies that animals have a sense of fairness. I, and I could do a whole essay here about how fairness is baked into basically being a living being. 
<laughs> and when that gets violated, that has a lot of effects. And when um, and so it's really just a practical matter that creating um, a few people at the top and a lot of people at the bottom is not sustainable, especially as we go into um, in our current situation, which is very much driven by technology and technology is frankly only accessible to a few people at the top and will continue being that way. So um, this is this is not the way we've been doing things cannot continue and we have to we have to adjust globally from a scarcity resource-based mentality to a life-based mentality. You know, one of the things that I think about uh, as if you're somebody who's building wealth and who is doing this from a balanced place within yourself, you're not like trying to win in the way of like everybody else is the worst and da da da. I'm a big supporter. Build your wealth, build your prosperity, do all of that. And you'll notice if you're doing this from a balanced place of taking care of your true self, you will notice that you have extra to give and you'll want to give. And when you keep yourself full, you're able to generate more and more. So there are lots of organizations that people are creating these days that are helping to address a lot of these problems. And I think that is wonderful. And the more people we have operating not from that scarcity mindset, that we realize that there is enough for everybody. Yeah, there is. It's a, it's a distribution yeah. problem, not a creation problem. So yeah. Totally, totally. Exactly. Okay, Kim. So tell us about how people get in touch with you, how people maybe work with you with the, in their organization, how they can find you. Tell us all the goodies. <laughs> well, right now I'm working on a lot of projects involving um, make, putting the case for a lot of this out there and changing people's mindset around uh, these, these inherited ideas of how things have to be or how humans ha you know, have always worked because it's not true. Humans have worked what humans do is they work in, in many different ways that are appropriate for the place and time in which they find themselves. There's not one true way. So um, I, work, I work with teams to work on communication and team functioning. Difficult conversations is really my very favorite thing to do because that's, that's where real change happens is by being able to embrace the elephant in the room. Um, I, work, uh, I do executive coaching, again, around... Uh, finding your way, especially in an organization and maybe the first 90 days kind of thing. And I also do a lot of DEI and, um, and work around equity with the idea of looking at your organization, again, in a very kind and human manner, because, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And we, we've been doing it one way, we, need, we can do it more, more other ways, but there's no reason to, to make anybody feel guilty or bad about it. Right. We can just change without having to go through all of without having to like finger point and blame. Right. So I work with organizations who want to make their um, their offerings more uh, equitable, more accessible. Um, and a lot of times what that also involves is wordsmithing and helping come up with uh, missions and commitments that actually work and are meaningful for people rather than just words on a wall. So you can find me at Kim Perkins.com. 
Um, you can sign up for my newsletter, which is going to be mostly focused on how we can bring about, a, um, how we can change our systems to be more human centered. And um, I hope to um, run into a bunch of your listeners. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Oh, I am so grateful that you are out in the world doing this work. It is powerful. It's meaningful. And it just, I don't know, it just means a lot. It's, I'm going to get a little teary-eyed today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to not... right back at you, though, because you're, you're, everything you're saying is so sensible and so grounded and so exactly what a person needs to hear. And so I'm very glad that we to be here with you today. Yeah. Oh, I did not expect the little tears. <laughs> and I'll take him love and joy. Um, wonderful. So go to kimperkins.com and sign up for the newsletter so that you can get more of that juicy information. And for those of you that are looking to find true career fulfillment that balances with who you are so you can show up as your most powerful self in an authentic and honorable way, you can get this step started. You go to my website, JaneaBarnes.com. There's a free career guide. It's five secrets to switch to a great career. And that's at Jenea Barnes, G-E-N-E-A-B-A-R-N-E-S.com. And what is this ferocious feline's this is, name? This little girl is Pixel and she wants all the snacks. <laughs> Pixel, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for your meows that chimed in and added <laughs> to our conversation as exclamation points. I love it. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Kim, for being here and having this conversation with me. I'm truly honored. I am too. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be the Wolf. Please take a moment to rate, share, and follow this podcast so that together we can inspire others to be the wolf.